And I thought, you know, if I was on the outside, I would really want to know what was actually happening on the inside that day. And I felt so strongly that people needed to know. So, and it was cathartic for me as well to just write my story down because it was just so shocking. Unaddressed helplessness can quickly lead to hopelessness. Now, if you know me, I fight hopelessness head on because I know the impact it can have on both my well-being and my meaningful work. But the collective traumas and the weight of the collective grief is real and rampant and has been taking a toll on all of us, including me. There's so much we experienced over the last couple of years, and it's important not to rush through what we've experienced in our own lives and collectively as a culture. Now for me, the January 6th insurrection on the United States Capitol was the tipping point that did not hit me until a few months later, but continued to linger and drain my courage, confidence, and calm. And when I finally connected the dots with the burdens that lingered from my story, combined with the horror of January 6th, it brought forth a new level of healing that needed attention. And today's show became an unintentional therapeutic experience and unburdening catalyst for me, while also furthering my desire to share a lived experience to counter the many attempts to reauthor what really happened that day. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. On January 6th, I watched, along with the world, what happened in Washington, D.C. with both horror and anguish. What I did not realize until recently is the echoes I still feel from that day is because of vicarious trauma. Vicarious trauma is a term that was initially coined by McMahon and Perlman back in the early 1990s as a kind of trauma that trauma therapists were vulnerable to developing from working with their traumatized clients. Now, they identified three components of vicarious trauma. One is empathetic engagement and exposure to graphic and traumatizing material. Okay, check. Exposure to human cruelty. Check, check and reenactment of trauma within the therapy process. Now, while this was not a therapeutic setting, watching the insurrection real time and subsequent stories from that day checked component three. So check, check, check. McCann and Perlman have further expanded the vicarious trauma phenomenon to include the cultural and social trauma we can all experience outside of a clinical setting, which I both appreciate and feel is absolutely fitting. The relentless gaslighting after the January 6th insurrection and the continued attempts to retell that day in ways that deflect accountability and culpability for all that led up to that day directly tapped into my own traumas around gaslighting I experienced as a kid and young adult. So yeah, it makes sense that this day continues to linger in my system. And while I felt so strongly about telling a story of someone who experienced and survived that day, now parts of me feel like it was our story and my system wanted, maybe even needed to connect with someone who was there that day for my own healing and connection. Now, I realized this after reflections from one of my producers for this podcast, 
And see now my motivation for today's Unburdened Leader conversation is twofold. First, it was to share a story from someone who was actually there. I wanted to do my small part in sharing a firsthand account of someone who worked on the Hill and who was there that day to help counter the revisionist history happening while highlighting the unburdened leader experience of a powerful and accomplished leader on Capitol Hill. And second, I wanted to work through my own vicarious trauma from that day. Now, full confession, I did not know overtly and consciously that was a part of my intent. But my producer shared with me after listening to the raw audio of the show, he was struck by how hard it must be for me to only be a spectator of January 6th and noticed how I was processing my own experiences through my guest's experience. Boom, (laughs) that landed and I had no clue I was working through my own vicarious trauma from that day until he shared his insightful reflections. Now, as someone who lived on Capitol Hill and worked in Congress and my first love was politics, but I also fell in love there for the first time, made dear friends that are still a part of my life. Gosh, that whole season of that time of my life is both foundational, formative, and really, really treasured to me. I also know that grief comes with working through vicarious and collective traumas. And grief begs to be witnessed or it turns malignant. And there's so much vicarious trauma we're all working through right now, which means there's a lot of grief that is calling to be witnessed. I suspect you may be holding more than you know as you continue to show up, work hard, and care for those around you. There's no timeline for this work, contrary to some people who talk about this stuff, but make sure you're taking the time to notice how unaddressed vicarious trauma and grief may be showing up in your life. I know for me, it took me almost a year to realize all I'd been holding. My guest on today's show is an incredible example of long game resilience while riding the ups and downs of staying engaged in the political process while taking care of her well-being. Julie Tagan is defined by so much more than her experience on January 6th. While her story is powerful and needs to be shared on repeat, It's important to note that she is the chief of staff of Congressman Jamie Raskin, who is a congressman from Maryland and is also on the committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. She's a veteran leader in D.C. politics and campaigns and is committed to leaving a legacy to the next generation of leaders who will continue the work she's cared so much about for two and a half decades. Now, listen for Julie's firsthand account of what she experienced on January 6th and what she learned about herself. Notice Julie's response to how she's kept cynicism at bay while working in politics for over 25 years. And pay attention to Julie's reflections on responding to discrimination while owning all parts of her identity. Now, please welcome Julie Tagan to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Julie, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Rebecca. Well, Julie, in typical Unburdened Leader fashion, we drop in right away. (laughs) I want to go back to January 6, 2021. You are the Chief of Staff for Congressman Jamie Raskin, who holds the seat for Maryland's 8th Congressional District. Two days after the January 6th insurrection on the United States Capitol, you wrote this detailed account 
of your experience of events that day. And and I want you to read an excerpt from it, but let me let me tee it up because you talked about in this excerpt how it was just a normal day. You and your boss drove together and you could see the Trump folks, the QAnon, the Confederate flags that were milling around outside. Your boss was going to have a big speech that day because of his background as a legal scholar. He also had experienced a horrible family tragedy just days before. So he got this incredible access to this room that Majority Leader Steny Hoyer had given you all so he could work on his speech, but also have some space to convalesce and prepare before. And this office from Majority Leader Hoyer is like just steps from the House floor. You had a couple of his family members, Tabitha and Hank were with you noticing things were getting unruly outside. And at some point you could see them taking people away in handcuffs. There was smoke, probably tear gas, and the crowd was growing. And so I'd love for you to read kind of the excerpt that we talked about. So can you share in your own words, read the rest of what you wrote? Sure. Happy to do it. Suddenly we started getting alerts on the computer and our phones. Calls and texts from team members came pouring in. The Capitol had been breached. The House floor was quickly adjourned. The alerts told us to turn off all sounds in our offices and to take cover. Tabitha and Hank crammed under Steny Hoyer's desk, and I took the chairs in the room and barricaded the door. I was looking out of the side window at the chaos. I began to panic inside at the thought of the rasking kids being traumatized again and what was happening to them after everything they'd been through. Outwardly, I was calm. I told Tabitha and Hank that we would be okay. Inwardly, I wanted to crawl up in a ball and hide. I was scared. Perhaps it was the adrenaline or the reality of the moment, but I had an epiphany for lack of a better word. I was trapped in a room with a giant photograph of John Lewis on the wall and a bust of Abraham Lincoln on the fireplace mantel. I said to myself, and perhaps out loud, these people are terrorists. They cannot win. Some who know me might say at that moment, I got my Philly on. <laughs> I, gathered, <laughs> I gathered anything in the room that I could use as a weapon and put them by the door. A fireplace stoker, bus, a bronze award of a buck with large and pointy horns. By then, the terrorists had men made their way into the Capitol. We could hear their heavy footsteps outside our door as they tried to breach the house floor. We could hear them chanting, USA, USA and we want Trump, and stop the steal. We could hear them trying to ram the door of the house chamber just a few feet away. There were bangs all over the place. Someone jangled our door handle. I picked up the heaviest item I could find, not sure why, the bronze buck bust, and stood in front of the door, waiting for them to arrive. I started receiving texts from Jamie, who had been evacuated from the house floor, asking if we were okay. I lied and told him we were fine, because I didn't want to worry him, too. I also started getting calls from Pelosi's floor staff, who were trying to locate and evacuate us. Texts started arriving from friends all around the country, asking if I was okay. I only told a few close buddies how terrified I was. 
I talked to my wife, Dee, very quickly and told her that we were safe and fine. I asked Hank if it was convincing enough. After what felt like 30 minutes, the chants began to die down. I could hear police in the hallway. They knocked on the door and told us they were there to help. Tabitha and Hank got out from under the desk. We all looked at each other and said nothing. There was a delay to get us out as a result of being locked in, and I hadn't remembered I had locked the three inside locks too. Five Capitol Police officers opened the door. It was clear they were amped up. They said, let's roll, and whisked us through the tight stairwells of the Capitol, and we finally made it to the secure location where we were joyously joined by a super relieved and grateful Jamie. In the secure location, everyone was exhausted and there was little food or water. Little by little, small food items were handed out, goldfish crackers, berry gummies, Skittles. After four hours, pizzas and drink arrived. I pretty much survived that night on candy and Diet Coke. At around 9.15, I was able to get Tabitha and Hank a ride home to Maryland. I stayed with Jamie until the end, until... 4 a.m. It was an honor and privilege to be in the Capitol when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were declared winners and the next president and vice president of the United States. I arrived back home a little past four in the morning. I am still processing all of this, but I could never imagine this happening to the United States Congress. What does it feel like to read these words right now? Well... It's it's often painful because mm. reliving it is yeah. really is really painful. I don't relive it that much. I've I've relived it for my friends and my family. I wrote that because I was just being that day I was being bombarded by people wanting to know what was going on and I posted on Facebook that afternoon that I was safe, but I had a story for the ages. And people were just like, tell your story, tell your story. And I thought, you know, if I was on the outside, I would really want to know what was actually happening on the inside that day. And I felt so strongly that people needed to know. So, and it was cathartic for me as well to just write my story down because it was just so shocking. What stands out to you as you reflect on that day right now? I think back to how I really was terrified. I really, really thought that people were going to come in to the room where we were. And uh, that was really just terrifying to me. And uh, I think that's what stands out is Sometimes it's relief. Sometimes it's because it could have been so much worse. And I think a little bit of relief, maybe, that we're all okay now. As you revisit that story, I could even see that in, in you reading these words. But even with everything going on, you know, it, it's it's sometimes hard to step back into that relief. There was something that you wrote earlier in that excerpt about how your boss had texted you and asked if you were okay. And you said you you lied to him and said, we're fine. But you were steps from the House floor, which was breached. And I really, as a former Senate staffer, I really identified with that 
that protective nature that like, we're good, we're good. There's almost this weird reflexive response that we're the buffer (laughs) from all the hard stuff and we want to just protect. And so I just really resonated with that and, and identified with that. But I was also struck that these were extenuating circumstances. So I wonder if you could share what was fueling your desire to not worry your boss at that moment. Well, the family had just been through a tragedy like no other. The congressman's son, Tommy, took his life on the 31st of December. And then on January 5th was his funeral and they buried him. And January 6th was the very next day. And it was just, I, I, I think back to it and I think it was so real. And I think what happened to me is I was very scared and then I turned really angry. Hmm. That that was the switch for me. Like I went from being really scared that something was going to happen to me to being really angry that they were doing this to us. Because one thing, Rebecca, I really felt strongly about, and we were, Hank and Tabitha and I, along with the congressman, we were in that room. We got to the room around noon, and we could start seeing some of it. But it never once entered my mind that we weren't going to be protected. I've worked on the Hill for a long time. Hank and Tabitha were really worried. They were looking out the window early in the process. And I kept saying to them, it's fine. And I re- I really believed it. It's fine. There's no way. We're in the safest place possible. I actually mm-hmm. was kind of more worried about my friends and my staff that were in other buildings because I thought, I bet you they could get into the other buildings, but there's no possible way these people can get into the U.S. Capitol. And then over time, it, it just broke down and realized they're in. But it all happened so quickly. And and I just want to speak to that fear turning to anger I really value that. And a lot of times, especially for women, we judge our anger and anger is so powerful and mighty and it's deeply protective. A lot of times people say it's a secondary emotion, but this is a classic example of really almost it was rage. It's so primary. It's so protective. It was almost this righteous anger. Like I am not going to succumb to being afraid and to being bullied. No. And you stood your ground and that shift is, is really powerful. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. I, I also had this moment and I, I never thought I would really have this, but I did have a moment, you know, you never know what you're going to do in a situation, <laughs> situation like this. I, and really I, my first instinct was to roll up into a ball and, and, and hide away. But I did have a moment where I did say, I thought, honestly, I thought I was going to die that day. And I thought, I don't want to die scared. Like Mm. if I have to go, I just, and I had no idea that was inside of me. I just don't want to die scared. I want to go out fighting. And that's when I, and I I use some choice words. I say I got my Philly on, but I really use some choice words. And Hank wrote his story as well. And uh, he actually used the words that I used. <laughs> but I was, you know, I just was really angry. 
you know, you, you bring me back to a memory I had in DC when I lived right on Capitol, Capitol Hill, right off of constitution on the Senate side. And I was mugged. And what happened is the muggers, they passed me and grabbed my friend, Allison. And I watched one of them buckle down. And I remember there was this moment, there's two guys were behind me and I'm, I'm only five, two. And these guys just were giant and to, everyone's giant to me. <laughs> but, and, and there was this moment, just like you said, where I saw, well, I'm not going to watch her get hurt. So if I'm going to go, I'm going to go trying to help her. And I just jumped on the guy that was taken. And then I got pulled back and got all scrappy and they just wanted our backpacks. Thank God that was all they wanted. But that moment where it's like when you're faced with that moment where your life feels threatened, it's just like, how do I want to end? I don't want to end taking it. I want to fight. It's, I just think it was something I learned about. It taught me a lot. It was a horrible way to learn about that yeah. strength. What are the echoes of that rage that you tapped into? How are they well, showing up to you in your life? In some ways, I was, when I looked back on it, I just did like instinctively what I would do. I'm a mom. I just was protective. It was, it was very hard to take the, the incident, the, what happened to us, and process it because it was just a very psychologically terrifying thing, but it ended and I didn't get hurt and no one around me was hurt that I knew at the time. I mean, I ended up knowing a lot of police officers who went through so much and I, I feel for them tremendously. Uh, and that that's a little part of it. Like I'm like, well, I survived and I'm okay, but there were all these officers who were trying to protect me who went through hours of battle with these people. I mean, they were just hours of medieval battle with spears and crutches and flags, American flags that they were trying to beat the police with. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it was like a little weird in that I couldn't figure out how to process it so much. And I also, um, I didn't have a lot of time to process it because immediately after that, we went into impeachment and I was, you know, involved in the impeachment. So I really didn't end up processing any of it probably until March or so. And um, it seems really far away that it happened a really long time ago in my mind, but we're, you know, it's the anniversary. It's amazing that it's been in this year. Like I look back, it's it's actually been this year that it happened. We've um, lived a lot of life in a short amount of time. Sure what did. support have you gotten to help you with the trauma of that day? Well, the good thing is the House of Representatives, they really, they knew that a lot of people were traumatized. I mean, a lot of staff were traumatized as well. As, well, the police officers, number one, staff, Absolutely. and then members who were in the, who were on the floor were completely traumatized too. And, and they did a lot of support services for all of us. And I, you know, got counseling and spiritual help as well. I had a rabbi who was looking out for me. I always say whenever, when I was at my lowest points, my rabbi friend would call me and say, what are you doing? You need to deal with this. So it was very nice. So I feel like, um, I came through it 
this summer. Like I came mm-hmm. out, of, I, it was very, very heavy for a very long time. And then I, I had a really good summer and things started getting a little bit back to normal. I'm sure on the anniversary, I'm going to relive a lot of it again. And it's going to be really painful. But I'm going to look at the positive sides of what happened and the improvements so that the things that are happening so that this can never happen again. And that's what's really important to me, that two things, that this never happen again and that the people who did this are held accountable, that we cannot whitewash this. We cannot, and and there's a, on Capitol Hill now, there's a feeling of, denial on this on the side of the republicans i mean not all not all i'm not but there's a good chunk of people who are still saying it wasn't that bad and um i just really want to make sure that we don't do that that we that more stories even come out there's so many people who have incredible stories from that day and that 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 we shine a light on what happened that day so that this can never happen again. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I'm curious if, if you could go back in time, you know, go back to yourself on that day, January 6th, you know, the youth standing by the door, ready to fight and protect yourself and your, your boss's family. What would you say to yourself? I would just say you're, you know, you're stronger than, you know, you know, you have it in you, you can do this. They won't, they won't define you, you know, that I would be hoping to give myself the strength to get through it. I mean, I, that time when I actually was holding the object to to the door, I was in my mind, I was trying to figure out what to do when they came in because there's no doubt in my mind they were coming in because I mean, they were right outside the door. It was very loud. One thing that your listeners and you know this, but your listeners may not know is that everything is marble right around Mm -hmm. there. So the sounds reverberate like, so I, I, reality is I probably was hearing a lot more before they even got close. And if I remember anything as terrifying as that day, it was the sounds because everything was amplified. So we really could hear them trying to get in the house floor because they were, were right by the entrance that they were trying to bang down. Um, in the back of the house and, you know, the jangling of our doorknob and everything just reverberated. And it's the sounds that I will never forget. I think what we all probably felt from those, the sounds that the loudness, the intensity of the, of the noise from that day, I will never forget. And, and I suspect in the future, and you probably maybe have already experienced it if noises like it might still startle you, might still have that strong kind of trauma response because our bodies hold that. And I, I I picture, I have this picture on, you know, the anniversary coming up of uh, January 6, 2022. 
of a place where everyone can come and really remember together. There's something so powerful when there's a, a traumatic experience that's shared by many to come together and to give witness. That'll be healing. It might, it'll be painful, but it'll be cathartic and really a, an important part in all of your healing journey. So I hope, I hope I know how busy things are right now. I hope that there's time for you all to, to be able to remember and witness together as the anniversary comes up. I'm curious, what do you want people to know about that day that they're not seeing on the news? It was a lot of people like me that it's not, mm. it wasn't just the members of Congress. It was a lot of people like me. It was a lot of people that work in the services of the house. There mm-hmm. are janitors, our food service individuals, a lot of support staff and everyone it, it it affected everyone and it also affected so i i was in the capitol i was a few feet from the floor i was in the thick of it but i also had a lot of colleagues who were just right across the street in their office buildings and they were traumatized because their bosses were over here their friends are over here they don't know what's going on and even we were in a, a lot of remote work, too, because of COVID. So there were a lot of staff that were working from home, that were working remotely. Mm-hmm. They have, like, survivor's guilt, kind of, like, they that mm-hmm. they weren't there that day. And so and I even have a friend who retired a couple years ago, and this has just deeply affected her because she's like, this is, it, it, it's a violation. It was like a yes. real violation of your of your home, your heart. This is what we do. This is what we yes. devoted our life to, and they violated it. And I think everyone who works on Capitol Hill feels that way. You know, it's interesting. I, I watched a documentary a few weeks ago, HBO Plus documentary, Four Hours on January sixth. Have you seen it? I don't think I've seen that one. I don't. I'm. I'm not sure if how you how your nervous system would feel about it, but there was some interesting footage I hadn't seen. And one thing that stood out to me in light of what you just said about that violation, and, and that's I think that's a big part of what it was affecting me as a former staffer watching this. Yeah, it was a violation, and it's hard to put to words. But then I heard people chanting. This is our house. This is our house. What does that bring up in you when you heard the chanting and heard people saying, this is our house, take back our house? Yeah, I mean, that just, it's revolting to me because mm. it's its its the people's house, but not the insurrectionist house. You uh, know, that's, that's the difference. It, it is the people's house, but they were there to, I, I mean, in my heart, I think they were there to overthrow the government. And who'd ever think that this could happen in the United States? And it wasn't their house. And that's why it was it was really important that day that they go back in and certify the electors. Yes. And there was a moment when we were all together, like they they put us in this. I'm just going to call it the secure location, but there was a, there were hundreds of mm-hmm. us in there that had been over in the Capitol and, um, you know, Speaker Pelosi came in the room and she said, it doesn't matter how late we have to, we will go back in tonight. 
and the place erupted in applause. And then Liz Cheney came out because at that point she was the chair of their caucus and it was very bipartisan. And this feeling like we can't let these people win and we're going to make sure that we certify these electors. So that part felt good. Thank you for sharing this. And and I want to talk more about what's happening right now with the committee investing that day. But first, you know, I, I had you on because I wanted your, your, your sharing what happened that day, but there's so much more to you than January 6th. And I want to share a little bit of that. You're a veteran staffer of, I read 25 years and you, you've seen a lot. Um, I'd love for you to share what inspired your decision to start working in politics. I, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, and when I was there, we when I was in my formative years, we had a really, really kooky mayor, Frank Rizzo. I think people <laughs> remember Mayor Frank Rizzo. And just from a really early time, I loved to read the newspaper. Like, that was just my thing. I loved to read. I liked, I really wanted to know what was going on. And I loved politics. And uh, when I was at University of Maryland, I had an internship in the Maryland General Assembly, and um, that's an assembly that actually follows an order where every bill that gets introduced has a hearing and the public can, anyone in the public can testify at the hearing. And and I just fell in love with the process and I knew I, I really, I have to work on Capitol Hill. And that was my, what got me there. And then throughout my career, I have wanted to do different things. Like I wanted to try campaigns and, um, and I did try campaigns and I I've been really, really fortunate in life. And with my career, I've, I've pretty much have loved everything that I've done and not everyone gets that in life. And, um, I really, you know, it's not for everyone <laughs> what I do. It's, it can be really intense but I have loved campaigns. I've loved working on Capitol Hill. I worked at the Democratic National Committee, presidential campaigns, congressional campaigns. And it's been, I just feel, I really do feel so fortunate to be a person who loves what they do and has always felt that way. Oh, that's a gift. Yeah, it that's is. A gift to have that meaningful work. Many people, they burn out or they get cynical or they just kind of, they take the high paying corporate job, which isn't bad, but it, it's it's a stepping stone to something else. Is, is this what you, is this what you thought you'd be doing with your life? Yeah, in some ways. I mean, g- growing up in Philadelphia, one thing I just knew I knew I wasn't going to stay there in some respects because I, you know, if you could be a lawyer or go into banking or insurance, and that just wasn't for me. I knew that. So once I got like the political bug, I just thought that's what I'm going to do. And I've just, I've moved around a lot. I mean, that's the nature of this kind of work is that you move around a lot, but that's worked for me as it fits in with my personality. So I've enjoyed it tremendously. And, and what keeps me going now, because I'm really in reality, I'm sort of at the, let's just say I'm at the autumn of my career (laughs) where I think more about retiring than my next step, to be honest. Yes. But I do feel a great responsibility now Mm. to nurture young people. 
I really do. Like that's I, I've 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 thought through and I realize like, you know, and I have my own, I have two daughters, one's 21 and one's 19. Uh, they're not wow. interested in politics at all. They're both creative <laughs> girls, but the young people on Capitol Hill, I really want to try to help them find their way and, and love what they do also. And they're, you know, it's very trite, but they're the future and they're the ones who are going to really make a difference. So my goal now as I sort of, you know, think about the end of my career is to make sure that, you know, there's people there, young people there who keep the flame lit and and do the good work. Because you're right, you can really burn out in these jobs and you can get really cynical too. But I think if you have an environment, if you create an environment and give people opportunities, they won't be as cynical. It's very easy in politics to become cynical. Yeah. I mean, we see these things and, you know, you could easily <laughs> become cynical. And I, and I have. I mean, I don't want to portray myself as someone who has never, you know, I, I've, I've gone through periods of like, you know, I've seen a lot of things, <laughs> some that I haven't liked a lot. But on the whole, I mean, most of the people who are in this work are in it for the right reasons. And mm. I really do believe that. I do too. Yeah, they're really in it for the right reasons. I mean, with politicians, there's definitely ego going on there. But Just a little. Yeah. <laughs> you but, need it, though. I think it's protective, honestly. I mean... It's brutal. Yeah, to that's put a good yourself point. out there. Yeah, it is. And they right, they have to really put themselves out there. So there's ego, but I do think most that enter it enter it because they want to do good things for people. So I'm listening to you even acknowledge kind of your your dancing with cynicism, but I'm not getting that from you at all right now. That you genuinely still care. You believe that this is what I'm sensing that what you're doing is making a difference that there's still hope for change. Am am I reading this right? I I think you're reading it right, but I'm also realistic. I mean, I, Uh, uh, I was on the Hill. I mean, my first Hill job was 1989 and there was, yeah. And there, yeah, there was a sense of campus and it didn't matter if you were Democrats or Republicans. You, yes. There was a community and yes. we were all in it together. And it's nothing Somewhere. like that now. And, you know I, know, I think I could really get caught up. I think we all could get really caught up in this idea that we can't get anything done. But you, I mean, you, I wouldn't be able to work on the Hill if I really believe that nothing can happen. I also think in DC, there is, there's a little bit of this like group think and it's an infectious and to really not be idealistic without your feet on the ground. Like you said, you're a realist to kind of just look at it and say, yeah, things are tenuous. We've got work to do. And so sometimes I think when they like to forecast, people can check out and, and tap out and, Yeah. So I guess I want to just, even on that note, that even on success, success in DC, 
at least in my experiences, has a different flavor than it does in other jobs. It's not always like the salary or the title maybe, but it's more in who you know and the access to power or wins around legislation or elections. And I'm curious, I'd love for you to share how has your definition of success changed over the years of you working in DC? Well, it's really hard to quantify success in politics because, (laughs) you know, it's very true. Yeah. It means so it's so different for different people. Some people like success would mean passing a bill or an amendment, you know, when you get into Congress, others, like you said, it's winning campaigns. I've never thought that much about, I I love winning. Don't get me wrong. I really love winning, but I'm a progressive Democrat. We generally lose more than we win. So you come to terms with that. And I just laugh like, yep, I usually support the losing candidate. But I think success, sometimes longevity is just success. Being able to um, stick around and continue to do the work. For me, you know, I feel good about it. When I leave, I want to leave and feel good about my career and what I've done. And for me, a lot of it is about trying to make things better for people. And, and I think that's what drives, certainly what drives Jamie Raskin is, is that, and, you know, his, he's a very positive person. He finds hope in everything. And as you can imagine, he does after what he lost his son and then did the whole impeachment. So he's infectious. His positivity is infectious. And I've found that that's, the only way you'll survive is you have to be positive. Find the good in there, in, in well, even and, the bad. But let me let me p- pick on this word positivity because for me, I feel like it's even deeper. I feel like it's courage. I feel like it's hope. I feel like it's grounded values that you stay focused. It's, it's law and it's long game look. It's not expedient. So uh, tell me if that lands with yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, it can't be expediency in in um politics it's just like that's i sometimes i have to talk to my my friends through my wife my friends through this process like the senate in the founders wanted it to be a deliberative body stop yeah yeah so you know nothing happens quickly on either side of the house. And like, we just saw the sausage making of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I mean, it was really horribly ugly. And, you know, it's, it's almost magical that it passed. <laughs> and there was a lot, as you can imagine, because Rebecca, you know the atmosphere, what was going on it was just torturous. <laughs> and, you know, everyone, on the hill no one could figure anything out and it was just torturous and the fact that it passed again it was really almost magical and then we're going to probably experience that again with build back better and my hope is that these things are transformative for people and that they'll see that and hopefully vote that way in next election, I don't think that we have figured out why some people vote against their best interests. And Mm. why do you think that happens? I think that more people 
are, I do think that people in DC don't have a good grasp of what's really going on out in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are a bubble. And Mm -hmm. I I think that, you know, you would think people would, would vote for their economic interests, but in a lot of ways, the cultural things that bother people, that's going to be the driver. So there's the one issue people, but then I Mm -hmm. think also there's a little bit, I do think we're missing out on the understanding the cultural issues of what's going on out there. And I mean, you can see it. I, I just have a lot of concerns about we appear to not be addressing the cultural issues of certain communities and we were trying to deal with a lot of the economic issues because we need to, because we're in an, an economic situation due to the pandemic. So, and we've ignored infrastructure for so many years that we were in a kind of a desperate situation. So we need to address these issues, but we're also not understanding some of the underlying psychology of people and their need for freedom. And, you know, you see it right now with these board of education meetings and parental rights, and it's just tough. And I think we just have to really take a good look at, at, at all of it at, we have to take a good look at what people are thinking and what's important to them. And we're going to, we are going to fix a lot of the economic problems or we're going to try. I mean, these bills address some of it and address a lot of it and it's going to pull people out of poverty and it's going to help a lot of people. It's going to create jobs, but we also need to find out kind of what motivates them to vote for a, a a person and a party. It's it's the messaging. It's definitely in the messaging of that too. And in connection to that. Yeah, you're right about the DC bubble. I remember when I moved out there, I was interning at the the League of Municipalities in Iowa. And they said, don't get swamp fever. I'm like, what are you talking about? We're going to change the world. And a couple of years, I'm like, I know what he's talking about. Yeah, you lose catch that bubble. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. I I do want to shift a little bit about something you wrote a couple of years ago that was so moved. You wrote an op-ed in June of 2019 for the Washington Blade about the importance, and I just love this, of expressing all parts of our identity openly and without fear. That just really caused me to pause. And this particular excerpt was so powerful. You wrote, I'm an LGBTQ American. I'm also Jewish American. I don't agree with the policies of the current Israeli government, just like I don't agree with the policies of the current American government, which the time then President Trump was still in power. But my Jewish faith and my LGBTQ identity are essential parts of who I am as a human being. And this is just powerful. You said, to discriminate against one part of my identity is to discriminate against all of me. Now, this was in response to an LGBT gathering that was wanting to prohibit the wearing of the Star of David and carrying the flag of Israel. Tell me a little bit about who or what has helped you on your journey to owning all parts of your story and your identity. Well, a little bit of, um, you know, I'm 
I'm gay, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm Jewish. They're all, those are like really important things to me. And I've tried to stay grounded in that one thing, um, you know, when I was really young, I, I was married to a man and that had a lot. I saw the difference between how you are treated when you're in a heterosexual relationship versus when you're in a same sex relationship. And I also realized because I came out in the nineties, so early nineties, and it, it was it was a lot easier than a lot of people, but it was still kind of, you know, not as easy as it is today, we'll just say. It was just very profound for me because it, it changed my life dramatically, not only in terms of happiness, but also that I really no longer cared what people thought of me because I knew everyone was talking about me. Like, and that's the thing. Like I knew people that I grew up with who learned this, you know, it was the nineties. I knew everyone was talking about me because I thought, gosh, if I knew somebody like that and that happened, I'd probably be talking about it as well. And from that point on, I never really, it, it just, I was like, this is who I am and they're going to talk about me and I can't help anything like that. But I also felt like, when we go back to this issue of being all these different things, and it is really painful if one part of you is discriminated against, you know, and for a long time, it was the LGBT part of me. And it's definitely changed so much for the better. You know, I still live in a little bubble here in right outside of D.C., so I'm sure if I lived in the heartland, maybe it'd be a little different. Um, but also, as a Jewish person, I grew up in a very Jewish area. I didn't know, I like to say, growing up in Philadelphia, I literally thought everyone was either Jewish or Catholic. Um, <laughs> and... <sighs> And you, you do have to, it does hurt when one part of you, someone doesn't like one part of you. Well, how do you dissect that? How do you dissect that? Are you, can you compartmentalize? I can't in that way. When one part of you gets picked at, it, you can't anything but feel that, they're coming, you know, it's all about you. And it's sad. It's dehumanizing too. What has been the biggest challenge navigating discrimination and bigotry on Capitol Hill? Well, I, it, we really, like, I, my first job on the Hill was in 1989. It was a completely different place. There weren't that many women in leadership roles. I was very young, so I didn't expect to be in a leadership role, but we've really come a long way. And I can't say that I've been discriminated against for mm. being gay, for being Jewish, or being a woman in the last 10 to 15 years. In politics like the campaign world and it's it's a man's world it's it's been that way for a long time and and that 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 probably was the hardest on me so now when i look up and i see 
all these really powerful women that are their staff directors on all the major committees. They're making all these decisions. It just, I just, it brings joy to me to see so many women in charge because it just wasn't like that when I first got there. And it was hard navigating. You know, it really was. Like I had a Me Too moment on when I was young on the L. And and almost every single person I knew had that. Oh, right? Like, at least one. Yeah. More than one. Usually, Mine yeah. didn't come from a it member. Was it was from another staff person. But mm-hmm. like it's still, we all had it. And um, it's con- it really has come so far. It's 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 just great to see that. Because it was hard it's to see in the beginning, hear. yeah. You've given me so much hope. I do want to wrap up with bringing, kind of bringing things full circle back to where we started in our conversation. Right now in Congress, your office is working on a lot of pressing legislative issues. But for me, most importantly, he's serving on the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. So given the immense pressure to rewrite what happened on that day in January 6th, to me... And I know to many, the work on this committee feels deeply connected to preserving democracy. I'd love for you to be just so clear. What is at stake right now with this investigation? And why should we all be paying more attention to what is happening with this investigation? Well, it's really crucial that we make sure that, like I said earlier, that we, that this never happens again. So I think the committee is really trying to dissect all the components of what happened so that it will never happen again. And I think there is a great desire to hold people accountable for this because like you said, this is our democracy. There's never been an attack on the Capitol prior to, I guess there was attacks on the Capitol prior to the Civil War, but like this was an attack on the Capitol. It's, it's to even say that a modern attack on the Capitol is mind boggling and we can't forget it. We cannot forget what happened and we cannot let it happen again. So I think the committee is dissecting everything and really wants to get to pull all the pieces together together and find out who did what so you can prevent it. And there's, they're getting a lot of cooperation. I mean, we, a lot of what's reported in the news are the people who are not cooperating, but there's been a lot of cooperation. And I think the committee is, it's not a legislative committee, but it'll make some recommendations like the 9-11 committee. Hmm. Some of the committee, some of the things that I think they'll recommend have to do with you know, safety and securing the capital and things like that. But also, I mean, I think there's a great desire to make sure that within the institution and outside of the institution that we can't just allow, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this, but we we just can't allow people who want to tear down our democracy 
to even go as far as they have. But I think there's a sense that it was much more complex than what meets the eye. Yeah, to bring to bring that to light. And you mentioned to make sure this never happens again. And you also said, and to have accountability. I think that's and key. What, the tell me more. Accountability, to make sure that the people who planned it, who cooperated with it at all levels are held accountable. There were planners, there were funders, there were potentially members of Congress who helped. Everyone needs to be held accountable. I think we will look back on that day in awe of what happened. And we will always say it could have been much worse. Like that's in my heart, like, wow, this could have been really bad. And, And it ended up being terrible, but more people could have died and they didn't. But we can never get this close. And we can't allow leaders to get into a position like it, it's scary. Like, I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, of, but we can't allow leaders to get into place who could either do these things or look the other way. And I think that's a lot of what's happening now on Capitol Hill on the other side. The Republicans, they don't want to admit that this happened and they want to look the other way. They don't want to take it seriously. They hide behind this by this idea that it was that this commission is is partisan. It is not. It is clearly bipartisan. Um, we could have even had a 9-11 style commission. That's actually what Pelosi wanted. And um, the Republicans would not take yes for an answer. We gave them every single thing they wanted. And from that day, I think everyone knew that when they said they're not going to do this, that they don't want to know. They really don't want to know the truth because the truth is ugly for them. You know, what's happened to their party, it's ugly. And they don't want to know. They just want to have people vote for them and they'll do anything. It's scary to tell the truth because accountability is always inevitable. And here accountability would mean losing power. Yeah, exactly. The stakes are high for power. The stakes are really high for power. What message do you have for those who are who would say they're not political? I've got a lot of those people. Yeah, so do I. So do I. (laughs) And and they've tapped out of the process because they don't feel like it matters to them. What message do you have for them? Well, I want to say that you have to have hope and that you shouldn't just disappear, really, because that is not going to help anything. Just Mm. not, you know, disappearing into your own life and your own things are not going to make things better. So really, if you want to make big things better, you have to stay involved. You have to pay attention. It's going to get you down. It will get you down at times, but you have to recognize that. And what I try to tell people is there are definitely times that it's going to feel terrible and you will get down, but it will get better and you'll have to pick yourself up and unless you disappear, right? And and then maybe it won't get better for you. But just paying attention, 
not getting so into it that it destroys your life. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's a problem for a lot of people. They, they've Absolutely. said they, they don't want to watch TV anymore because it just gets them. I think learning how to look at it objectively and taking a reality check on yourself, but staying involved, writing letters, calling members of Congress, getting involved in grassroots organizations. I highly recommend people getting involved in grassroots organizations. And voting. Right, and And voting. voting. The main thing, I would hope that people won't give up on voting because that's where it all makes a difference. And not just for president. Like you can't just come every four years. I'm very concerned about what's happening on these school boards because that now people like rational people aren't sure they want to run because of everything that's going on on in these school boards. So paying attention at all levels and voting and going to your candidate forums, like we're heading next year is going to be interesting. You know, it's an election year. Try to go to some of them, ask questions. It's always, to me, it's very fascinating. You know, you can support interesting people and who are trying to do good in the world and, don't disappear. That's all I would say. Please don't disappear. Make sure you vote and try to stay involved. Oh, thank you for that word, Julie. Thank you so much for this time, for for sharing your story from January 6th, but sharing your broader story and your vision. You are a rare, a rare one out of DC with your level of hope. Um, grounded in realism. I kind of call it, there's a scrappy hope that you, it's grounded. (laughs) (laughs) You fight the cynicism and it's refreshing. So thank you for sharing your story. I am so glad that January 6th did not get worse for you or the congressman's family. And I, I just am so glad that people get to hear a snippet of a story of one of the many big hearts that are working day in and day out to truly make this country better and how you're leading yourself. We can all take a page from to hold on to what really, what really matters and to stay engaged with meaningful work. So thank you for your time and thank you for your service. I'm so grateful. My pleasure, Rebecca. It's, it's been great speaking with you. Really enjoyed it. You're alive in 2022 and in the United States. I feel like it is safe to say you have experienced vicarious trauma in the last couple of years at minimum. There have been many, too many moments where we've all watched together that have activated vicarious trauma and collective grief. Now, I hesitate even listing these things because I don't want them to sound trite, but I think it's important to name the horrific milestones of COVID and COVID-related deaths, the witnessing of hate speech and violence and life taken, successful attacks on our democracy, relationship-ending debates about masks and vaccines, attacks on protesters, and waking up to being complacent and complicit to systemic racism. And if you're a helping professional or service professional, no doubt you have not escaped the last couple of years unscathed. So as you get curious and begin to really look at the vicarious trauma you've experienced and the grief that is demanding to be witnessed, consider following these ABCs, as they call it from the book, Transforming the Pain. And so start with an awareness. That's the A. So start with an awareness of your needs, your emotions, and your limits. So many I work with, including myself, betray their own boundaries and push through their own capacities. 
This is foundational work for leaders that is often overlooked or breezed through. We have got to get clear in our capacities and respect them like our life depended on it, truly. So next, the B is the next to look at how you can balance between your work, leisure, time, and rest. Now, I'm not a big fan of the word balance, as many of you may know who know me, and I like to talk more about integration. And this requires, again, awareness of your capacities, honoring your boundaries, and redefining how you value rest and leisure time. The burdens of grind culture really shame rest and play, and it's essential that we reauthor this lens. Now, lastly, here's the C, connection to yourself, to others, and to something greater than you is an important part of recovering from vicarious trauma. Whether you call it faith or spirituality or higher power or the ocean, deepening your connectedness with your own story and your inner system, with people in your life who make you feel both brave and safe, and being connected to something bigger than you also is important and essential in healing vicarious trauma. I am so grateful for Julie sharing her story with me, and I was surprised by how much it helped me heal my own vicarious trauma from that day. She modeled the power of sharing your story as a means to move through trauma, the power of finding connection, and the permission to allow the losses and grief to be witnessed. All qualities of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy or vicarious trauma can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights, but it is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict, both between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you're deep in the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can sign up for my weekly email, find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.